I'm not sure how many of you are new today who have just come in to do the last six weeks, but whoever you are, I'd like to welcome you to uh, this sacred space that you're entering into. And it's very fortunate that you have come into this place, this sacred space, this exquisite silence that has been prepared for you. Those who are here have, in a way, worked very caringly to prepare this space, this place of practice. And so we welcome you with a lot of metta into this place and acknowledge that it's a great time of transition for you and for those that are receiving you. In the islands where I come from, in the Hawaiian islands, there is uh, what we call a kapuna system. And it's a system of respecting our elders, of um, having elders in the community that continue to teach the, the younger ones. And it's quite a beautiful way that they've preserved in all of the islands. Um, the schools, the elementary schools, actually hire the older people in the community, the older Hawaiians and the Chinese and the Portuguese and the Japanese, and they have them come and speak to the children about the, the old ways, the way of respect for the land, the aina, for the elders, for a way of uh, life that has um, held together a community. One of the great kapunas of Hawaii is, um, her name is Hana Viri. We called her Nana as a, a, an endearing way of addressing her. And she was actually the godmother of my youngest daughter, Therese, who I speak of a lot. Um, Therese couldn't be born until she had a Hawaiian name and um, it's just kind of a little side story. And uh, I was carrying Therese for an awfully long time, and it was past her due date, and Nana had not called yet to give the Hawaiian name. And I called Nana, and she said, it hasn't come yet to me. <laughs> and, so, and so finally, Nana called, and uh, she told me what her name would be, which is Ihilani, Heavenly Splendor. And that night, Therese was born. And so she told, Nana told me that she would be born that day. So they're, they're quite powerful beings, and they're simple. Many of them haven't even gone or finished elementary school. But they're simple in their ways, and they're... Um, understanding runs deep because of their simplicity. So what Therese learned, one of the lessons Therese learned from Nana and that I learned from Therese and from Nana is this. 
When you are going to a new place, when you're going across, across a threshold into a new place, and mostly in Hawaii it's referred to um, when you go to the ocean or you go to walk in a bamboo forest or um, you go to swim in one of the waterfall pools or you hike in any one of the craters that before you enter the place you must stop and really be careful and be quiet and pause and really feel the new place, the new space and they, the Hawaiians have a way of saying and you ask permission if you can enter that place, that new space and so then you say, I enter this place with respect. And so I think this is what is important when we enter a new space, not only for the people who are new, who are coming in new, but for the people who are already here. We're entering new spaces. We're opening to new places in our hearts and in our minds. And it's important to enter with respect, to really pay attention at those places, those thresholds that we cross over. When I traveled um, quite some years ago, I traveled to China and went to a place called the Forbidden City. And this is the old palace grounds of, um, of Beijing or Peking and uh, many of you might remember this if you saw the movie The Little Emperor. It was fil filmed in that place called the Forbidden City and I noticed that at every entry level, every entryway to a new place, a new hall or palace or pavilion, they had these foo dogs and these dogs were kind of part dragon-looking and part pitbull-looking. And, um, and I asked once, you know, what's the significance of these, these dogs or these symbols? And to make a long story short, and putting it in a way that I felt was appropriate for my own life and my own practice, they're a symbol of... Um, and a sign and a reminder of paying attention when you come to a place of transition, paying attention when you cross a threshold and remembering that you're entering into new ground and to leave whatever is old behind and to enter with kind of empty hands and an open heart and the, and the dogs, the food dogs are there to remind us of that, to wake up, to pay attention. So tonight I wanted to choose a subject to speak about that could speak to everyone, um, whether you're just coming in or you are continuing on your journey here. So I chose the topic of trust and courage. Usually when choosing a subject to speak about for a Dhamma talk, 
I try to see for myself what I need to learn, what I need to pay attention to, what I need to look into, to remind myself of. And how can I bring these ancient teachings that I revere so much alive through my own experience? How can I share that with you? Because I know your time is here is really precious. So how can those teachings have meaning for us in this day and age, in this 20th century? So just reflecting again on the major transitions that we make while we're here in practice. Here it's the halfway mark, and it's the beginning for many of you who have just come in. And for myself, and also for many of you, it's a time when our bodies are changing and aging. It's a time in my own life when this year I'll turn 50. And when my relationship to career, uh, to an old career is ending, and more work in the community, uh, offering of my services in the Dharma is happening. Different relationship as mother, as the, the children leave. And so it's a time of major transition and a time when a lot of trust and courage is needed. There are so many beautiful openings that can come from this time. And in some ways, we all can, and I feel that I'm blossoming in a new way, in a way which I've never felt before. Um, and in that aspect, it's kind of exciting. But the difficult part about it is sometimes I'm kind of overwhelmed with a great deal of doubt about how I can make it through, about how I can make it through um, being away from home or being away from my children or just getting through, you know, getting through a sitting or getting through a Dhamma talk. Uh, will I be able to open? Will I be able to give and to share? So faith in myself, trust in myself, in my ability to open, can seem like it happens so slowly, almost imperceptibly. And having trust in that kind of imperceptible, slow opening is really important on the way, on our path. I used to have a lot of brazen courage, a lot of bold courage to do the things I needed to do in life, to raise kids by myself, to um, send them to college, to continue on with the spiritual path while doing that. And a lot of times I felt like my boldness came from not knowing or from a sense of innocence or maybe even ignorance. I used to be told a lot that I was saved by my own innocence, by my own ignorance, by my own stupidity. It kind of helped me get through. But now that I've lived a little bit of life and my eyes are more open, I'm not willing to go um, through my spiritual life with that kind of brazen boldness, with that kind of energy. 
It takes a gentleness now, a trust and courage that I never had before, a willingness to allow my heart to open slowly and to enjoy the path, the opening, to savor each moment along the way because there's so much learning that comes from each moment of opening. So I began to wonder, how could I fit these two aspects or these two qualities that we need in our spiritual life? How can I fit this into the teaching? And so in sort of reviewing the five of this and the three of that and the seven of this, Um, I saw that there are, there are two powers that are um, pointed out in the teachings and they're, they're um, part of what the Buddha called the five spiritual powers. These five we are speaking of during this retreat. They're the first one being confidence or faith. Another way of saying that might be trust. So confidence and faith is the first one. Energy is the second one, and that could be translated into courage. It's the courage to bring forth that trust and to use it in our life, in our spiritual awakening. The third is mindfulness, which we talk about every day in the instructions. And um, it's interwoven within everything we speak about here. That's the core of our practice. The fourth is concentration, and the fifth is wisdom, all of which we're touching upon as we do the practice here. So we've all heard about this um, term. We've all heard of this term, leap of faith a leap of faith. And in the past, this kind of faith seemed to be, to me, like it was something associated with leaping and not looking, just kind of, you know, taking off on a path or on on a journey and not knowing where we're going with our eyes closed and kind of blind But as we go along and we see more things along the way, as we get older, our energy and time are precious commodities. And we can't do that anymore. You know, we used to be able to make mistakes and to kind of backpedal a lot and then begin again. But now it's important to walk the path more carefully. It's uh, not a time for wasting. Recently, I was inspired by a writing or an account of a five-day journey by a group of nuns, and this is called a tudong, or a tudong. I'm not sure where the accent is. But it uh, was written by Sister Jitindria of England, and it really touched me, some of the things that she said. And I'm... I'm pretty sure it would be okay with her if I read some of 
her writing to you, so I'm going to take the liberty of doing that. It was a journey that she and some nuns took from the Amaravati Monastery in England to a place called Devon, and it took a long time. I'd like to tell a little bit of this story or weave it in because it relates in a way to our own inner journey and also because we're just always trying to find ways of keeping you awake during a Dharma talk. Because <laughs> it can get pretty boring to talk about the same old things all the time. <laughs> I know sometimes stories are completely unrelated to what we're talking about, but, <laughs> but it really helps. So this is part of what she says, and it talks about what this Tudong is, this journey is. The journey wasn't all inspirational by any means. In concept and theory and philosophical retrospect, yes, perhaps, but the nitty-gritty of it at times was quite challenging, physically, mentally, and emotionally. But then that is what this kind of walk or Tudong is all about. It's a kind of stripping away of the usual comfort zones that one can that one can retreat into so as to contemplate the sense of insecurity that is thus laid bare in the face of the unknown. This is much of what the monastic training is about to train the mind to be more fully present with life as you experience it in the raw, creating the possibility for direct insight into the true nature of things. In doing so, one notices how habituated the mind is to control and manipulate circumstances in an attempt to not have to feel the natural pain and insecurity of life. So she went on this journey and they stayed, she and the other nuns, stayed in all kinds of places, all kinds of situations. They never knew what they were coming up against or coming into. They let it be unknown, just as every moment is in our practice, if we allow it to be and we're not expecting or hoping or carrying the past into the present or projecting the future into the present. They stayed in barns and sheds and open fields, on beaches and back lawns, and uh, even a cricket pavilion, she said. And they never knew where they were going to land. The food was quite unpredictable. I won't tell the whole story, but they depended a lot on the kindness of others for their food, and sometimes they didn't have very much. A kind of trust had to develop in their own ability to keep their hearts open and to connect with the kindness of others as they went along on their journey. Sometimes the landscape was beautiful, and it was very comforting. And sometimes the landscape was very difficult. The terrain was difficult and very challenging. 
Sometimes it was warm. Sometimes it was bitterly cold. So here also we have this opportunity to allow ourselves for this comfort zone, these comfort zones to be stripped away so we can open more and more into the unknown. Places where we have felt a lot of diversion in our life, places where we went to um, that were where we felt a lot of comfort, maybe reading or writing or acting out in certain ways, we begin to see that um, we can let those go more and more as we begin to trust our inner journey more. Attachments begin to get stripped away, or at least we see them more clearly. We may go through grief fear, blame, shame in our practice really come up against them and let them go also preferences we begin to see how they run our lives and how we can let go of how we want it to be we can let go of the projections of how we thought it would be So she continues to say, the idea of going on to Dung conjures rather romantic and inspirational images and feelings, for me at least. But reality is never contained or represented fully in ideas and perceptions and remains always unexpected and unknown. There's a place in the Sutta Nipata that's a beautiful little phrase that goes like this. Begin to accept things as they are. Let there be nothing behind you. Leave the future to one side and grasp not at what remains in the middle. Let there be nothing behind you. Leave the future to one side and grasps not at what remains in the middle. Can we do this in our practice? Can we allow this leaving behind, this not projecting onto the present moment what we want it to be? When we're on this journey through this sacred terrain, what is tremendously helpful is to drop all of our expectations, to have this willingness to have these empty hands and not bring into the moment what we think we need to bring in from the past. There's a beautiful writing by David White and it's about a lake around where he lives. The name of this poem that he wrote is Tilico Lake. In this high place, it is as simple as this. Leave everything you know behind. Leave everything you know behind. Step forward 
to the cold surface. Say the old prayer of love and open both arms. Those who come with empty hands will stare into the lake astonished. There in the cold light, reflecting pure snow, the true shape of your own face. How can we do this? One way, one thing that we can let go of if we're coming in to this retreat new or if we've been here for six weeks already is to be careful about the comparing mind. It's not very helpful. This is the mind. The comparing mind is the mind that brings in the old. And this is Mara in the moment, the tempter or the temptress that keeps us from being in the present moment. When we compare this moment to a previous practice or to a previous um, discipline or to a previous moment of experience, when comparing mind comes up, this is a way that we bring the past into the present moment. And it's really helpful to just notice comparing mind. Let it come and let it go, not getting lost in the content of it. So how do we cultivate this trust, this confidence, this faith? Slowing down helps. For those who are new and for those who have been here, no matter which one you are, just slowing down from where you've been before really helps. Just taking one breath, one moment, one step at a time. This really helps. Having a respect for the power of silence, for the power of inner solitude, this is an immeasurable benefit that one can have. Sages of um, old, women and men of all time, have used the power of silence and the power of solitude to help them to see more clearly, to come to this clear lake and to be able to see their face clearly, true nature clearly. And so wherever you are in the practice right now, see if you can take a next step towards even more solitude, towards even more silence, whatever that next step is for you, whether it's um, just um, bringing in your reins a little more, slowing down, not needing to write as many notes, not needing to connect with others in the various ways that we find ourselves needing to connect because we've been whatever, lonely or whatever our habit pattern is. Um, what are other ways, reading or writing? They may have helped us this far along the way. But see if you 
uh, let it go for a while. See if it brings you a deeper sense of silence, inner silence, a deeper sense of inner solitude. Just see for yourself. Often, all of us want to um, connect with that place and we don't know how connect with that place of inner silence and we don't see that it's mostly some practical steps that we can take to do that. I found a, in a new book of Mary Oliver that I just got um, a poem that she wrote about stars and it has to do with letting the words of our mind go. Here in my head, language keeps making its tiny noises. How can I hope to be friends with the hard white stars whose flaring and hissing are not speech but a pure radiance? How can I hope to be friends with the yawning spaces between them where nothing ever is spoken. Tonight at the very edge of the field, I stood very still and looked up and tried to be empty of words. So can we bring ourselves to this new place, the place that Mary Oliver calls the edge of this field, to this new place? and be very still and be empty of words. Can we take that next step in our practice, on our path? Can we trust ourselves enough to do that? Only you know the answer to that. Can you dig deep down to that place of deep trust in yourselves? to find that you don't need those places where the words meant so much. It's usually at this place, at the halfway mark, where there's a lot of um, papancha around the understanding of no self, which is completely, I mean, going against the understanding. <laughs> it kind of is funny that we want to understand it with words and we want to know the big understanding picture of it, you know, in a macroscopic way. But really we can only understand it in a microscopic way. The true understanding of no self comes from a moment-to-moment -moment experience. And this is the only way it can be understood deeply. So can we let go of the words, let go of the questions, and just be with the experience of it, whatever it is? So what can we do to allow a gradual unfolding of this dharma in us, of this um, bud in us, of this potential for awakening in us? There's a way in our practice where um, there's a ritual that we take sometimes 
and it, it can have an ever-deepening meaning for each one of us, and that is the taking refuge in the Buddha, in the Dhamma, and in the Sangha. And for me, taking refuge in the Buddha really means taking refuge in that um, potential of awakening that lies within this mind-body continuum. And really taking refuge in the pace at which that opening takes place. Taking refuge in... um, the unhurriedness of it, the organic opening of it, being able to open in our own unique way. Once when I was in a retreat with Manindra, um, it was, I think it was um, one of my first 10-day retreats, if if not my first 10-day retreat. And uh, it was a, it was a retreat that was very, very challenging. And uh, there all of a sudden new understandings came that were never there before. And um, sort of many kind of psychedelic experiences came. And it, 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 was a, it was like I was open to a whole new world. And it was kind of shocking in a way. And um, about the eighth day of the retreat, Manindra was kind of pushing me to keep keep going and inspiring me to stay up all night and um, keep practicing and keep practicing and keep practicing. And so I just kind of followed his advice and did what I could. And and so. I, I didn't feel like I was getting anywhere at all. I was kind of stuck in the same place over and over again in this sort of uh, very psychedelic, blissful place. And so I went to him and towards the end of the retreat, and he simply said, when the fruit is ripe, it will let go of the tree. And it gave me this image for the rest of my practice of, you know, that it just takes place in its own time, the ripening of this fruit, that you can't be in a hurry. This is from the Findhorn Garden, a writing from um, a book about the Findhorn Garden. Flowers unfold slowly and gently, bit by bit, in the sunshine. And a heart, too, must never be pushed or driven, but unfold in its own perfect timing to reveal its true wonder and true beauty. So can we have this kind of trust? Can we surrender to this? Can we take refuge in this trust to unfold in our own way, in our own organic way, ripen in this way. It's said that trust or faith is like a seed. It establishes itself firmly in fertile soil. And it's up to us to make that soil fertile, to give it the watering, the sunshine it needs, 
but we can't push the growth of the bud from that seed. Faith has a characteristic of venturing beyond, of aspiring beyond. And so if you look at a seed, if you reflect on a seed and how it comes, there's energy that kind of bursts forth and kind of cracks open the shell and allows what's inside that seed to venture beyond into a whole new world. This is what faith is like. There's what is called bright faith. In the beginning of our practice, we have what's called bright faith. And I'd like to talk about my own development of faith because um, it's not a very uh, interesting story, but we just hear so many great stories about the Buddha and about the nuns and monks in the in the monastery and even mythological stories and it's kind of hard to relate sometimes because you know we're just wiping runny noses or changing diapers or (laughs) the oil filters on our cars and it's not very romantic but um, yet we all have the same kind of homing instinct that the Buddha and all the nuns and monks of old had this instinct to really feel connected with all of life, to know the truth deeply, to understand a peace and happiness that's beyond the peace and happiness that we know, to experience emptiness or nothingness in a courageous way. So for each one of us, this opening to trust and courage may be different and yet the same. So my own journey began on the spiritual path began about 25 years ago where when somebody today asked me, well what brought you to the path? And it was, and it is easier, easy for me to say that suffering brought me to the path. Dukkha brought me to the path. And for all of us, this is kind of what brings us here. It's um, a heavenly messenger to many of us, suffering. When I was young, um, 18, I was married into a sort of wealthy family. And to make a long story short, it was kind of an arranged marriage. And... um, where my mother betrothed me to uh, this family, uh, to a man that I had known for only eight days. And uh, it, it was okay with me simply because I was ignorant at that time and I wanted to get away from my family, from my home. So I said, it kind of looked interesting. So <laughs> I said, okay. And so I went into this marriage, into this political, wealthy family in Manila. And I came from a very poor family, kind of a lower middle class or um, middle lower class. And uh, when I went 
into the new family, I was surrounded by a lot of wealth, but all around me was poverty. There was a lot of wealth in the family that I was in, my married family. And um, it was a it was an eye-opening time because I was in Manila at that time. And um, I got to ride in a Mercedes-Benz and be in the back seat with a driver, you know, that had to carry a 45 revolver because he was also uh, a bodyguard for me. And I went to the place where I was employed, where I was appointed, um, because I, I, uh, my father-in-law was in that realm of the government, so I got appointed to a, a quite a, a good ranking position in the central bank of the Philippines, and I would be driven to work every Friday to collect my paycheck, um, and I didn't have to work. All I had to do was go and collect the money, and. <laughs> So I'm just trying to give you a picture of how it was. And so I'd, I'd enter the car on, on the Friday morning, and um, in the, uh, I'd get into the back seat. And at first, you know, when I first got into the family, I t- would try to sit in the front seat, and my in-laws would say, no, no, this is not proper. And I'd even try to say thank you to the, to the help that I... I had a driver, a gardener, and six maids. And I would say, thank you, and they'd say, they'd tell me, not say that, you only say, well done. You never say thank you. And it was a, a very, very new world for me. And so I'd get in the back seat, and the, and the maid would give me, on literally a silver platter, something, some tea and some things to eat along the way because the traffic in Manila is pretty outrageous and it could take a long time to get to work. So I... (laughs) So for any of you who've been to the, you know, to Bangkok or to India, um, you know how that might be. So I'd, I'd go to work and it would take a long, long time and there would be sometimes get caught in traffic jams and if there was no traffic jam and there was a, a, a policeman at the intersection, if the policeman would see my car because it had a, a license plate on it that, that signified that I was from a certain family, a political family, then the, then the, um, the policeman at the corner or intersection would stop all traffic so that my car could go through. And so here I was, very young, and I didn't know, you know, what was going on. I I didn't know what end was up a lot of times. And I would see along the way beggars, and um, really um, desperate-looking old men and women, and young boys and girls, and very, very young prostitutes and little boys and girls that I heard would rent babies to, to carry so that they could um, show them at the car window and you would take pity on them and give them money. And so I, I fought, you know, whether to give or not to give and 
um, at one time I put my hand out to give some money and the, they were so fast they would come and they would rip your hand open and by the time I could get my hand back in the, the car it would be full of scratches and so it, it really opened me to being in this situation where I was so comfortable in life opened me to the dukkha of the world there was such a disparity between where I sat and what I saw that it opened, it kind of ripped my heart out to see this. And I tried to, um, I did everything I could, you know, to try to help. I worked in an orphanage and uh, it didn't sort of assuage my heart. And so um, I was a practicing Catholic at the time and I would go to the to the church to say novenas and uh, where you repeat you repeat these prayers over and over again and I felt like I was just impossible I just dukkha had opened so much in my heart that I felt like I was one of these impossible cases and so in in the Catholic tradition there's this saint that you pray to Saint Jude and it's a saint of impossible cases and so I would literally sometimes crawl in the cathedral from the back to the front. And, you know, because this was the way, this is the way things were done. And I'd really, I, I would just do anything to know what is the truth of life. I really wanted to understand. And so there came a point in, in my time of staying there, I was started to take up yoga and um, and it was offered at this place, um, uh, this Indian, uh, Eastern Indian home. And when I went in and I saw um, uh, their altar, and it had many different things on the altar, and it had um, it had a the Hindu symbols, and it also had the Buddha, you know, like is sitting peacefully with a smile and it had Christ on the cross and I think at that time I looked at those two and I knew what my choice had to be <laughs> so I didn't want to crawl through the cathedral anymore and um, I wanted to know that place where that smile came from on the Buddha and I wanted to know that place in my heart and not a church. And I wanted to find the trust to do that. So to make a long journey short, I ended up um, having this great uh, experience where near our home was this um, the the marketplace and it's where the the cooks went to market there and they came home one day and they told me of this great uh, site that they had seen near the marketplace and so they asked me to go with them so I went along with other members of the family and we all went, to, went over there and we came to the place and there were plenty of cars parked there it was kind of like an old just an old village town and um, 
We parked the car and we went along the pathway that was winding around to this place where we could see a lot of people milling around from a distance. And um, it was pointed up to me in, in this area above some palm trees that there was this light up above. And this light, uh, this was kind of in broad daylight, so it couldn't have been a projection of anything because it wasn't projecting onto anything, it was in space. And so we came around the corner and I looked up and, um, and I saw an apparition of, of a woman, a very beautiful woman who looked quite angelic and translucent and she was wearing robes and kind of floating in the sky and I'd never seen anything like this before and quite a few others were there so it wasn't a hallucination this was real and so the this woman had uh, hands and face you could see through and also her her gown was blue and white and they say it was the, the Blessed Virgin, so Mary. So she was looking around, doing this, turning her head. And um, I just, I think out of shock, I fell to the ground and sort of was on my knees, sort of looking up. And, uh, and the words she spoke to me at that time were, were and it wasn't out loud, but I kind of felt them. What are you doing here? And so I, I took a long time to answer that question and eventually left the Philippines. Uh, but what that apparition was to me and what it in, instilled in me was this tremendous bright faith, this faith to believe in the unknown, in something that I had never experienced before. This kind of trust to open to what I could never have thought I would have opened to before. It touched in me a place of courage that I could open to, that to take steps that I needed to take on my path. And sometimes each of us on our journey get this bright faith were encouraged by an experience, a book, a person, a place, a reading maybe, that helps us to keep our way to shine a light on our path. But it's not enough. At some point that light isn't bright enough when we come to a place of real darkness. And it's where we need to look to our own experience where we need to go to a place where we can open to what is called verified faith. Faith that comes from our own experience. Faith that can depend on our own ability to maybe see the laws of impermanence, experience the ever-changing moment-to-moment, to open to that vulnerability that comes with opening to dukkha, a kind of faith and trust that comes from allowing ourselves to open to that deep vulnerability 
of our hearts that's called dukkha. And aligning ourselves with those truths, with the truth of impermanence or anicca, the truth of vulnerability or dukkha, and the truth of insubstantiality or the conditioned nature of life, conditional nature of life that we often refer to as no self or anatta. And allowing ourselves to align with those truths, this is the threshold that we come to in our practice. Can we let go of that faith that held on to a person, place, or thing and align ourselves with the new truths that we are now experiencing, the truth of impermanence, of vulnerability, of no separate self. So a lot of faith and trust comes in our ability to let go. Not let go in a forceful way, but let go because it's going. We see it going. How can we hold on when we see it going? Suzuki Roshi says, true renunciation is not giving up things of this world, but knowing that they go away. That's what true renunciation is. Sometimes faith is not surrendering or taking refuge in the Buddha only, not just taking refuge in our potential to awaken, not only that, but it's taking refuge in the Dhamma or in the Dharma. And what does that mean? Not taking refuge in this big Dharma, this big law, this big understanding of Um, what the Buddha taught. But if we can take a look at it as taking refuge in this moment, in this very moment, surrendering to how things are right now, right here and now, this moment is what is true, whatever is in this moment. It could be anger, it could be grief, it could be rage, it could be shame, it could be doubt. Can we take refuge in that, in that Dhamma, in that moment? It's from that kind of taking refuge in that moment, surrendering to that, that the courage comes to continue. When we can just allow ourselves to go one moment at a time, There have been many times in my own practice and that I hear from some of you that I speak with that um, a lot of our ability to keep going is just taking one step at a time, literally. There have been times in my practice when in walking meditation I really wouldn't allow myself to look at the end of the path that I was walking on if I was taking... 50 paces, I really even wouldn't look that far. I would only look to the next leaf or the next rock and just 
remind myself or give myself an intention to be as mindful as I can from here to there, just really short distances, and letting ourselves do that, taking refuge in short bits and pieces at a time. And sometimes we find when we do that, it unleashes a lot of um, energy that we can ride on. And we find that we ride further on that energy to just take one step at a time. We sometimes go further than one step, being as mindful as we can. So a true faith is verified faith. It unleashes this incredible power or energy or courage. It brings it forth, the courage to keep us moving, to keep us going. It takes a lot of um, kind of quiet effort to do that. The effort that comes from courage. I don't have it with me now, but there was a beautiful writing by um, in the teachings of Don Juan that talked about effort and this energy that we have to put in our practice. And it was kind of one of those Zen stick um, teachings or writings that he offered where he said, it's up to us, it's up to you. You can take the energy that you have and put it into complaining or into blaming, or you can put it into your practice. You can put it into and towards liberation. It's up to you. So if you see yourself blaming or complaining, remind oneself, can I put this energy into liberation, into taking the next step with mindfulness, into taking the next breath with mindfulness, into opening to that anger or blame with mindfulness. It's up to us. That choice, that humility that we can have that opens us to that. is really rare. But we have the ability to do that. The end of Sister uh, Jitindriya's writing goes like this. The journey is not really finished.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.